Hello and welcome to Eat, Read, Three, Repeat. I'm Sarah. And I'm Chloe. And today we've got a bit of a themed episode. It only seemed right being as this year marks 100 years since some women in Britain got the vote that we take a look at suffrage in pop culture including one of mine and Chloe's favourite books, Anita and Anne's Sophia. But before we get into that we've got Reading, Streaming, Repeating where we'll briefly chat about some of the things we've been watching or reading recently. So what have you been up to? So I have been re-watching White Collar because uh, no one wears a suit better than Neil Caffrey. Uh, um, so White Collar, for those of you who haven't seen it, is a five-season series. It stars Matt Bomer as Neil Caffrey, who is a white-collar criminal, and he is in prison and then comes out of prison so he can help the FBI track down fellow white-collar criminals, so people who are frauding? Yeah, frauding. (laughs) Frauding? Basically, he's a fancy thief and he catches as a fancy thief. Yes, he's a very fancy thief. So um, he wears an anklet that means he can be tracked at all times by the FBI, but he's still got one foot in the criminal empire as it were he loves the finer things in life he loves art and food and wine but you know what else he loves his fbi handler (laughs) he does love his fbi handler so it's basically one of the best portrayals of male friendship male male friendship i've ever seen on tv it's also got one of the best portrayals of a marriage that i've ever seen in it and the fbi handler's wife is played by kelly from saved by the bell And she's awesome. I um, once bought a jacket specifically because the person in the shop told me I look like Kelly from Sofa the Bell. No, I was like, I will take that's that. That's a good enough reason. But it's really good. So it has every season uh, has an overarching storyline, but then every episode is is sort of a procedural, but it's like, a oh, let's track down this art thief. I just watched the one where they're tracking down a guy who's stolen a Tyrannosaurus Rex skeleton I think it is yeah it's just generally brilliant Matt Boma wears extremely well cut beautiful Mm -hmm. suits sometimes he puts a fedora on it's a bit sad but also it looks quite good in it yeah which is it's just very slick it's New York is it's really entertaining and I was just I've seen the whole thing before but nothing on my Netflix list was really appealing to me so I just clicked into a random episode and started from there I've been reading quite a bit I'm currently in the middle of To Say Nothing of the Dog, which I am absolutely adoring. It's a comic sci-fi novel from the 90s by Connie Willis. And she wrote a couple of novels all set into this thing. And it's about time-travelling historians, which, I mean, what a pitch is that? <laughs> this one, which you might go from the title, kind of nods quite heavily towards Three Men in a Boat, which is my favourite book ever. I've never read it. Oh, I love it so much. You can borrow one of my, like, eight copies, nine okay. copies, ten copies. I don't know how many copies. I've got quite a few different editions. So I'm really enjoying that. I also finally got round to reading We've Always Lived in the Castle. <laughs> I like, It's taken me so long to do it. It's oh, like, my goodness. I love that book. It was so wonderful and great. and So um, it's by Shirley Jackson, yeah. who wrote loads, years and years and years ago, like decades ago. Yeah. And I remember I read We've Always Lived in the Castle for the first time about three years ago. Mm. And I was like, where has Shirley Jackson been I know, all I knew, my life? The minute I finished, I was like, I have to go and read everything by her. And I think she like a lot of her other stuff is ghost stories. And this yeah. one's kind of ghost stories, but without any actual it's ghosts It's kind of it. gothic drama-ish. Yeah. It reminds me of the Virgin Suicides a bit. But... I'm also slightly baffled by it because they're going to make a film and Sebastian Stan is going to be Dreadful Cousin Charles, which I don't like. And 
Alexander Daddario is playing Constance and I will ship that because damn they're both so beautiful but no, no that is wrong if you read the book wrong. and it's a very short book it is wrong and terrible and wrong and wrong and also wrong <laughs> but the book is wonderful and it's 149 pages long and it took me two hours and ten minutes to read and it was honestly everyone should read it was like a savoury delicious treat it so. is amazing Okay, well now on to the main bulk of the episode, we'll be looking at a few books and a film about suffrage. And I'm going to get on my high horse here. So I basically it. read an absolute ton of stuff recently to do with suffrage because I put together a list for stylists, which we will link to on our Twitter. Often we talk about suffragettes. So suffragettes refers to something very particular. So the suffragettes were members of the Women's Social and Political Union, founded by Emmeline Pankhurst, who was arguably one of the most famous people in the suffrage movement, and the Pankhurst family are kind of key to it. Kind of shorthand for... Yeah, absolutely. And their famous slogan was deeds, not words. However, the WSPU was only founded in the 1900s. And for years before that, suffragists had been trying to get the vote. And the suffragists were part of an organisation called the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, led by Millicent Fawcett, who is a pretty well-known person in the suffrage movement, although not as quite well-known as I would say less. I would say less name recognition definitely so both groups were working at the same time for the vote the main difference between them is that the suffragettes and emmeline pankhurst as their slogan says deeds not words they believed in militant action so they were responsible for carrying out things like stoning and breaking windows in oxford street hammers in their purses and the suffragettes the suffragists largely did not now there is some overlap between between those movements but i think it's important to acknowledge both groups when we're talking about about suffrage yeah. i think the suffragettes definitely lit a fire mm. under the movement and under the the kind of the fight for vote, votes for women but i think both groups personally speaking having done quite a lot of reading played their part in getting british women the vote so yeah. that's my history lesson over yeah, that's <laughs> no it's funny because we use suffragette and i feel like we often use suffragette as like a blanket term and in some ways suffragists yeah. is a better blanket term so yeah, yeah so, there, anyway. there is a definite difference between them. Like like Chloe says, I think we use suffragettes all the time, but technically speaking, there is a difference. And I think for those women that didn't believe, that vehemently didn't believe mm. in militant action, yeah. I don't think they would enjoy being called suffragettes. Yeah. During the course of this episode, we may use both terms somewhat interchangeably, depending how yes. on the ball we are. Um <laughs> I am not very on the ball at all. Just wanted to throw that out there. But had have had a long day. Um, there were some shower anecdotes involved. Yeah. Anyone who follows my Twitter will understand. <laughs> but one person who was a suffragette is yeah. the book that we want to talk about is called Sophia, Princess Revolutionary Suffragette. Those three words might be in a different order on the title cover. I think anyway, you've got it right. Yeah, by Anita Renand. And it is the story of Sophia Dulip Singh. And she is an absolutely fascinating character in sort of suffragette history. And also um, in British history, generally. British history, I generally. Would say. Yes, no, absolutely. And one of the kind of curious things about her is that before reading this book, didn't really know anything about her. And when you read it, you don't know why you didn't know anything about her. So she was a princess, as the title suggests, and legitimately sort of a princess. So her father was a Maharaja who came over when he was sort of a a youngish man. 
and it was brought over by the Victorians. So Queen mm. Victoria, as part of their colonisation of India, sort of used the Maharajas, correct me if I get any of this wrong, but sort of to legitimise this sort of like, mm. sort of colony as their society. So he kind of came over to almost be part of her court here. Yeah, so Sophia's dad was the guy that basically the English took the Kohinoor diamond mm-hmm. from. He was... And the Punjab. And the, and the whole <laughs> of the Punjab, basically. His his dad was revered by people in the, mm. in the Punjab, like, was a complete hero to them. Is it the lion of the Punjab? I I think, like, yeah. I think so, yeah. So Sophia's dad came over when he was about 15 and he yeah, requested yeah. to come over, but that was part of kind of the British way of working and he yeah. was like, oh, I'm now interested in Christianity and he converted. Yeah, so he was but, part of Queen Victoria's court yeah, and, and a favourite of hers. Yeah, so much beloved and he had three daughters, all of whom were extraordinarily fascinating women and sort of characters in their own right. But uh, Queen Victoria was their godmother. So you've got these three women who were sort of Indian but brought up in British court society their godmother is the queen and then they are they live in this sort of very madcap house their father's a bit eccentric and they sort of live this strange life and then they are orphaned and they go to live at Hampton Court Palace and they sort of take off in various different directions where their passions take them and where Sophia's take her is ultimately to the suffragette movement. Weirdly, via the medium of cycling, <laughs> is so she becomes obsessed with... There's lots of things that kind of lead her to this. Yeah, including, I think, a visit... Am I right in saying a visit to India where she yes. sees... Gandhi's work, yes, and, and she's, is inspired by his work. Yeah, for like the yeah, she's, of well, she's inspired by sort of liberation. Gen, she's an activist for women's rights, but she also is very active in other sort of parts of British society. Indian people who've been brought over, crewing ships, and then are just abandoned at the docks, who sort of like fall into homelessness and everything. She was really active, kind of working with a lot of them. Mm. But one of the sort of the biggest things that she did, and one of the biggest embarrassments, really to society was that she was a suffragette and she was sort of a very out and loud suffragette and she would stand outside the palace selling the suffragette magazine and she refused to pay taxes and sort of went to court for it and everything else and it was very difficult for them to touch her because she had that it was a time that the aristocracy were still in many ways above the law and and, and the, i think the thing that comes through is how the threat of embarrassment was enough for the british to they basically they were embarrassed that she wasn't paying her taxes yeah. but they were worried that they would be more embarrassed should they arrest her and subject her to the treatment that other members of the suffragette movement experienced in prison which we'll go on to talk about more later but which I'm sure a lot of people know involved forced feeding so that that really comes through I mean she was right there by Emmeline Panker's side at times yeah yeah, sort of one of the kind of those lieutenants who were sort of at the top of the movement and you know she went to court she made a lot of statements about no taxation without representation she accosted the prime minister on several occasions but but she's wealthy she's very clearly wealthy in the way she dresses and the society that she keeps so she has access and she has a platform despite being a woman of colour at mm. the time when One she was the living. few I mean I can't <laughs> even begin to imagine yeah just the unique place in history that she occupied and that she chose to turn that into activism for yeah. all women yeah. on behalf of all women I had never heard of her before and I remember 
Chloe was working in a bookshop at the time mm. and I popped in and Chloe was like, have you read this? And pressed it into my hands. And I, as any person who, read lots, who reads lots of books yeah. will know, I hadn't planned to buy anything. It just happened. I was obsessed I, with it from the minute I got hold yeah. of it and I have pressed it upon many people. Yeah, and I've done the same and that's all down to kind of Chloe. But I think it's an extraordinary story. I mean, it reads like fiction. Partially mm. it reads like fiction because just the extraordinary things that happened in her life, but also because she's so little known that you're like, how is it yeah. that someone like this existed yeah. at that time in that society? And we've barely heard of them. And yeah. things things are luckily changing now. I think her name is better known. I think Anita Anand has a lot to do with that. Yeah. The book is incredibly well written mm. as well. Mm. I believe... Has it been optioned for TV? Or I feel like I there, there know, has been a documentary maybe about her as well. And she's also going to be one of the names that's added to the Millicent Fawcett statue. Sadiq Khan announced this very recently. And the Millicent Fawcett statue is going to be the first statue of a woman to be erected in Parliament Square. Which, if you think about it, is just... I can't believe it's taken this long. It's somewhat ridiculous. Um, it is somewhat ridiculous. I mean, I, I hope they do because... I feel like as a character on TV, she would be magnificent to watch. Mm. Done right. She lives in Hampton Court Palace. Yeah. She shows dogs. She's obsessed with... Yes. She's got these couple of sort of dog breeding things. Everyone else who lives at Hampton Court Palace hates her dogs, but she won't get rid of them and she refuses to sort of think. So she's got these little yapping dogs that she's got. She smokes constantly. She cycles. So the women's cycling movement was part of... And actually, this is kind of something that crops up again and again, that women's freedom to travel is like a kind of a driver and also a symptom of women seeking freedom generally. So it's interesting because one of the things I was going to say that I found really fascinating about the book is that she doesn't have the freedom to travel because the British won't let her and her siblings go to yeah. India mm. for a long for a long long time yeah. they won't let them go to India because their grandfather mm. was so revered yeah. they're worried that if the Dilip Singhs go back to India people will rise up around them and be like no these guys are back you know yeah. they're from the most powerful most loved dynasty they're mm. back we're going to rise up against the British and yeah. take you know take our country yeah. back so yeah that when you talked about freedom of movement or lack of freedom of movement yeah. that's immediately that because a, a lot of the book is spent her trying and her, especially her, one of her sisters is very her, her very keen to go back to her India. Her eldest sister I think I think she moves back to in yeah. India full time doesn't she and then the third sister goes off to Germany yeah with her with because her tragically their father yeah. never got to go back to India no. he tried and was stopped by yeah. stopped by the British and ended up dying in destitute in a hotel room in Paris I think I think it was Paris a, yeah. cr- a crummy hotel kind of room sad, in Paris yeah. really sad really yeah. sad story but I mean one thing about Sophia is like talking about how her story is becoming better known I think she's still left out a lot uh, of a lot of narratives of the time mm. so one of the books I read recently was Emmeline Pankhurst's book My Own Story in which she basically recounts kind of the suffragette movement up till just before the First World War so the suffragettes and the suffragists during the First World War both essentially stopped because there was a war on and they mm. needed to help the war yeah. effort so this this book My Own Story doesn't recount actually getting the vote for anyone and it's a book I think I feel like and I don't know this for sure I feel like it was written for an American audience because a lot there's quite a few instances in it where mm. Emmeline Pankhurst goes, oh, for my American friends, 
and like explain something and she did make a lot of trips to America but Sophia Deleep Singh is not mentioned once in this book and in fact a lot of key people get pretty short shrift and I understand this is Emmeline Pankhurst's story it's called My Own Story but a lot of the prominent suffragettes yeah, I f- only get a couple of paragraphs. Yeah, it's one of the it's one of the things that makes me uncomfortable about Emily Pankhurst. There are many of them, but one of them is that it's this lionization of one single woman. Mm. And we talked about in the Black Panther episode, and I'm sure we'll talk about many times in the future and everything else. But actually, the most powerful movements and the most powerful narratives are about and the suffrage the suffrage movement was about women supporting each other to sort of rise up all women that's the point and things and i think a lot of the pankhurst kind of narratives and a lot of the pankhurst lionization and everything else and just that name that you hear over and over again and part of it is because there was the family of them and her daughters and everything else but it almost is like that she was this charismatic leader that led women to sort of freedom and actually her daughters did quite i feel like they did a, a lot and Emily Pankhurst she did she did go to jail she did go on hunger no, strike no, but absolutely. not as much as some other people in, yeah. in the movie. and even with the daughters you know and Sylvia was working very specifically working with sort of poor women and working yeah. class women and sort of was a real socialist and was interested in women from all backgrounds in a way that Emily Pankhurst maybe necessarily wasn't I think it part comes partially Emily Pankhurst was in a position of privilege yeah she didn't have like lots and lots of money and her husband who was very prominent mm. in in the suffrage movement and he was a lawyer and died not long into their marriage i don't think mm. but they did have some money and she was afforded things that perhaps other people in the suffragette movement weren't and that's something that comes through i think the kind of class and privilege issue comes through quite well in the film that's based on the book mm. which is called just suffragette and it came out a couple of years ago and it follows essentially a working class woman named Maud who works in laundries Mm. she she launders clothes and it's her journey to becoming a Mm -hmm. suffragette and it's sort of based on on Emmeline Pankhurst my own story and for me I watched it and I kind of enjoyed it but I also thought it felt really thin on the ground and I remember when it came out I only saw it recently when it came out, there were lots of people talking about how amazing it was. Yeah, and I watched it at the time and just felt really flat about it. And then I was like, I'm just being, I was clearly in a bad mood when I saw it or I'm being really things. But but yeah, I think it is, I I did feel like it was an oddly... I think the tone's strange. Mm. I think it felt, it felt like here are the key moments of the suffragette movement. Yeah. And on top of that, we'll have a story about a woman just to link them all together and I, I didn't think it felt very authentic I felt either it needed to be a film about Emmeline Pankhurst or it needed to be a film about, about... Emily Wilding Davidson yeah. <laughs> again uh, who Emily Wilding Davidson who is mentioned I think in total gets four five paragraphs yeah. in, in the book that Emmeline wrote it's interesting like I, I think there were lots of things about the film that I was like okay but also that I just wasn't really into and it, it's quite exposition-y and it feels a bit it felt a bit clumsy to me yeah. it did feel like here are some events linked together and it I've really felt the class divide as well so you've got Helen Bonham Carter who's kind of a doctor middle class who's very prominent in the movement yeah. kind of encouraging the washerwomen to take part yeah and I think that's I, I quite I quite like that it sort of was trying to address some of the class issues at the same time. And I and I like that the main character of the film 
you know, it's, it's an interesting choice to not make it one of those kind of prominent, mm. sort of like a high class suffragette kind of voices that we maybe hear all the time. And because the, the suffrage movement was powered by and like was all about working women sort of, you know, wanting to take control of their own lives. And sort of Maud is kind of a composite character and I think quite a lot of the things that she does in the film are taken from real experiences and are sort of like stitched together to create this new person. Mm. And in some ways I feel kind of bad because it's almost like we haven't reached a critical mass of narratives about suffragettes and the suffrage movement and everything else in order to be that critical about them. It's because, you know, we don't, oh, this one isn't better than that one because we've got one. There's yeah. like one. And it, <laughs> and it is a movement it, that was yeah. so like revolutionary and everything else the paucity of material is Mm. upsetting it is hard and i i thought carrie mulligan was really good in the film Mm. i really enjoyed watching her i just felt it did feel a bit cold a bit like here's the essentials of the suffragette movement and i didn't really come out of it feeling empowered i came out of it feeling like okay well here's you know there were things in it that i didn't really love so so Maud, basically her involvement with the suffragettes causes her husband to turn against her and yep. to take her son away. And there were lots of men that supported the suffrage movement. And I felt it would have been a really radical move for the film to have him, a working class man, supporting his wife. Yeah. And you do see, like, Helena Bonham Carter, her husband in the film is very supportive. But again, that it came across to me a bit like, well, he's a middle class man and yeah. he's more learned. And mm. of course he would understand the importance. Whereas this guy who's grown up, yeah. you know, poor and spent his life since he was a young boy working mm. in manual labour wouldn't. And I, there were things like that. And also there's this kind of, implicit linking of so Maud we never see it but it's implied that Maud suffered was sexually assaulted by her boss at the laundries Mm. and he has now turned his attentions to a teenage girl that's just started and I felt there was this implicit link made between that and Maud's involvement in the suffragette movement rather than it being for any other reason and again that didn't really make me believe in her actions anymore and I just felt that was drama for drama's sake yeah I mean I suppose if you think about it that's actually a really good mirror to the Me Too Mm. movement which is definitely which is a response to like sexual harassment and sexual violence and and now women are sort of rising up to talk about it so but things but but i think yeah it is a shame that that that's almost kind of the the, the it was trying to get everything the, in wasn't it was it? it was trying to sort of maybe hit every mark and it's almost like the drive of her actions and then it's like i don't know it, it is an awkward i don't know so i think i think what you said before though about her being a composite is quite a good thing because i think had the filmmakers decided right we're going to make a film set during this period of the suffrage movement. And then from there just said, right, everything else is fiction. Like we'll have one or two events. You can't, Mm. I don't think you can ever take out Emily Wilding Davison stepping in front of the King's horse at the races out of any film. To be honest, like, cause that last 10 minutes I thought was the most powerful thing because it's, it's that event which everybody knows, yeah. but the context behind it and everything else is so muddy that we, you know, yeah. people have a, a lot of strange misconceptions. And also that tends to be the only thing they know about her. And she's a fascinating woman. She did so much before um, that. And I think the film tries to touch on that, but I think had they, really, no, yeah. I think 
And, the, and you know, and then there was also the thing of, well, we've got Meryl Streep to pay, play Emmeline Pankhurst, so let's give her I'm a few scenes. And about it, to I be just wasn't, Don't really rate Meryl Streep that highly, to be fair. It was. I, was I, just, like, I just felt that screen time could have been used to yeah. expand on Kerry Mulligan's story. And also, the horse racing scene was affecting... I found the force-feeding scene to be the, the most powerful, yeah. most affecting part of the yeah. film. And the thing that I think one of the things that you hear about but you don't fully understand until there's sort of some sort of represent like some sort of visual representation in front of you and I think I think that was the thing the film did the best it was painful to watch really painful to watch but I think that was that was so well done really visceral really kind of shocking and really kind of like alerted you so it was that and then those last 10 minutes where you saw the the king's horse and then it was the real footage of her funeral Mm. and the women marching and that was when I cried Mm. because I was like oh hold on a second this is what feels I think that's what the rest of the film never felt real to me. Yeah. Ironically, I don't think it was fictional enough to feel real. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you didn't buy into the characters enough because they were supposed to be composites of various people. Yeah. You didn't buy into them also enough. How white was it? <laughs> it was it was very white. It was very white. And and again, kind of so one of one of the other books that I think we'd really like to talk about is called Rebel Voices, The Rise of Votes for Women, which is by Eve Lloyd Knight and Louise K. Stewart. And it's actually a it's a children's book, but I would recommend everyone go and read it. And that is about suffrage around the world. Mm-hmm. And we often think about the suffrage movement, and we don't even think about America in this case. And there yeah. was a huge, you know, movement over there. Yeah. But this is a book that really shows you mm. suffrage in an international context. I will say actually the title cards at the end of Suffragette, they do they do scroll up when countries around the world get Yes, they do. Uh, yeah. get women's suffrage. Yeah. And that is there are some shockers on Well, there. I mean most of the Middle East, not until the last couple of years. Yeah. But what what Rebel Voices does and it is great it's not very wordy it's got these gorgeous kind of graphic style illustrations in lots of kind of dark moody colors and it chronologically takes you through the history of suffrage um just reminding us that the fight for women's the women's vote and all that represents Mm. is like much bigger and it starts in 1893 in new zealand and i think one of the things there is that in 1893 in new zealand women got the vote for female European settlers and indigenous Maori women as well. And I think that's so important because, you know, you look at in, in, in Britain, Mm -hmm. only women over the age of 30 who had property or were married got the vote in a hundred years ago, a hundred years ago with to, it was not until 1928, I think Mm -hmm. that other women got the vote. But again, you kind of look at, there's a spread on South Africa and white women got the vote in 1930 in South Africa and black women and black men didn't get the vote until 1994, which is just, did you hear what just came? Say it again. Say it again. (laughs) So white, white women in South Africa got the vote in 1930 and black women and black men didn't get the vote in South Africa until 1994 and that is just we were we were grown we were people with thoughts and feelings and emotions like you know what I mean that's it's so recent but that's why I think Rebel Voices is is just I really enjoyed it credit to the the writer and the illustrator like it was just it was just fascinating and also the way it you know makes you realize that and I think 
think you kind of mentioned this, Chloe, that votes for women are often linked to times of conflict. Like, mm. you know, and, and here as well, kind of coming out of the Second World War where men had, uh, women had done the jobs of men and were then once again kind of shoved aside and that led to, you know, the beginnings of kind of the feminist movements and yeah. things. So yeah. a f- fascinating, fascinating Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's moments when society is yeah. shaken. Yeah. There, is, there are cracks that women are able to take advantage of, I suppose. That's a slightly weird turn for But you know what I mean. But rise up women, basically. Yes. And there's loads, there's so much more suffrage literature out there. There's a great book coming out called Death in Ten Minutes, which is um, the story of Kitty Marion, who was part of the suffragette movement. And she essentially was, was kind of sent around the country by the WSPU to like bomb stuff and you yeah. know carry out acts of violence and then was sort of ignored by the movement afterwards yeah um, there, there and it's was. only now her story is kind of coming to light there's another book coming out I think it's called Hearts and Minds which is about a massive massive countrywide march in 1913 which was organized by the suffragists mm-hmm. and it was like a march that involved hundreds of thousands of women like yeah. all the way from the, the coming from all parts of the country to london to hyde park and it was like no one's it yeah. was like how did that happen with no one ever talking about it until 2018 it's really funny isn't it you sort of like it's what I was saying before it's su- it was such an important thing and we sort of like pay lip service to it we should learn about the suffrage the suffrage movement yeah. as a whole with an international bent on it as well in school because it's the amount of time that we don't do the that. amount like, of times I studied the second world war which of course should definitely be studied but again when we studied the second world war we only studied like <laughs> yeah a tiny portion of it but you know we should we should make room for parts of our history that involve women and minorities yeah, we should learn. We the, the, colonialism. What they, what they should teach in schools? They should teach colonialism. <laughs> they should teach the suffrage movement, and they should teach queer history. Like, you should learn about all the ways in which your country has let people down, that's, as well as the ways in which it's yeah, triumphed. because that's what makes you a good citizen. It's yeah. like to understand the ways in which your country has failed, and the and the ways in which it has made itself better. The stories of hope in which it's made itself better, which means that you feel like you could make things better as well. Like that's so powerful. Like when you read about the suffragettes and their normal yeah. women who went through these extraordinary times, like you feel empowered by that. You think, yeah, marching does work, and you know, I'll ah. be running um, Chloe's campaign for government soon, <laughs> and uh, she'll be education minister in a snip. Um, and we'll make those changes. Sure, I will. I will. I will write your curriculums for In you. In the meantime, like, there's going to be some stuff on there you won't agree with, but you're going to have to teach it anyway. <laughs> um. So that's that's it from us on the the suffrage movement. Yeah, we hope you learnt something, but we hope mostly that you will go away and read Sophia because it, it is amazing. It's wonderful, and you will learn. You will. You will you learn, learn without of... realizing you're learning because yeah. it's such a good story. Yeah, it just it does it does it reads like a really wonderful novel. Um, and but it's all true because she was brilliant. So yes, yeah, so that's the main body of the episode. But it's now time for the best part of the week: twenty nine seconds of Terra Amazing timer. <laughs> if you would be so good, because Sarah, it's Sarah's turn to pitch something that she has watched that is both terrible and amazing. Sarah, you have got 29 seconds and they start 
No. Okay, so I'm going to pitch Limitless, not the film, but the TV show of the film that starred Bradley Cooper. It is produced, I believe, by Bradley Cooper. And it is about a guy who can take a pill that allows him to access, is it like 100% of his brain? So he's like super clever when he's on the pill, but kind of like a sort of wastrel when he's not on the pill. And it is really, really bad. But also, if you need something mind-numbing to watch, go for it. And that was 29 seconds of Terror Amazing. Um, so that's all we have time for, I think, this week. Yep. So if you want to talk to us on Twitter, we're at EatReadStream, or you can visit the website, eatreadsthroughrepeat.wordpress.com. We'll post details of everything we've talked about today, plus a couple of other titles that we kind of think that you might be interested in. Or you can email us at eatreadsthroughrepeat at gmail.com if you've got a comment on anything in this episode, want to talk to us about anything in particular, or want to recommend something that you think is in our wheelhouse. And we'll see you next time. Yeah. Rise women. Woohoo!